This program is a production of Restoring the Core, an initiative designed to assist those wishing to go deeper into classic Christianity, with resources available in a connected age, online at RestoringTheCore.com. This is the Lens of Glory, Class Session 5. Welcome to the Lens of Glory, a program dedicated to demonstrating that the Bible can be read through the lens of the glory of God. I'm Walter Hampel. This and all of the programs in this series of podcasts were recorded during Sunday School at Troy Christian Chapel in Troy, Michigan, the United States of America. The purpose of this class is to demonstrate the linkage between Jesus Christ and the glory of God as found in the Bible. Since the Bible shows us that it is written about and centers on Christ, the Bible also can be read with a viewpoint or lens, where we see that the glory of God is a dominating theme of Scripture from Genesis to Revelation. A Christ-saturated Bible must also be a Bible which is filled with the glory of God. The following is the audio for this class session. Our Sovereign Lord, I thank you for gathering us here to study your glory in your word on this first Sunday of the uh, new year, 2013. Please guide our discussion, our thinking, our teaching, and ultimately need to be glorified by what we're doing here. In Jesus' good name we pray. Amen. Okay, let's continue. Uh, what I am doing, I'm going to do just a little bit of a recap of what we did last week at the end. Two reasons. Number one, a lot of you may not have been here last like, I see some faces that I know weren't here last week, so you're here this week. Thank you. But also, I think it's a crucial concept that it's one of those things about the glory of God that when you think through about it, you think, oh, yeah, this makes sense. It, it may have been something that you hadn't quite wrapped your uh, mental arms around, so to speak, and hopefully this will be a benefit. So let's pick up we did last week, that the case I'm making is the Bible clearly shows that the glory of God is God's highest priority. That may seem a little strange to us because we might think, aren't we God's highest priority? No. No. And again, I've used it once and I'll continue to use it. Tulane Vigian's quote from his book, Jesus Plus Nothing Equals Everything, in which he says, we matter, but we're not the point when we're looking at scripture. God is. We looked at a passage last week, we're not going to reread that, from Haggai, which shows how God's priority of his own glory is shown when the people of Israel had come back from exile. And they were expecting this to be a glorious time, the rebuilding of the kingdom, that all the drudgery they went through for the prior 70 years is going to be undone, and it was going to be Kingdom of David 2.0. Things didn't quite work out that way. And what had happened is that there was the beginning of the rebuilding of the temple under the uh, Edict of Cyrus the Great, who took over as the, well, when the Median Persians took over the Babylonian Empire, Cyrus the Great becomes the leader of that area that was once the Babylonian Empire and is now the Medo-Persian Empire. So he gives a command that the temple in Jerusalem be rebuilt and that people who want to go back can do so. And he actually provides 
money for the rebuilding for the temple. The rebuilding starts, but people come and go. Cyrus is already kind of older when he's uh, taking over as the leader. He dies, and then you have a time in which there are people who were part of the area around Israel. Think of Samaritans, the ones who were half Jewish, half Gentile. When the people who are building the temple say to these people who've already been in the land all this time, uh, no, we don't, you're not going to help us in building this temple. There's jealousy that happens, there's strife. It actually causes a political turmoil in which there's a stop work order given by the, uh, by the king to say, you won't keep rebuilding this temple. So this thing is sitting there, this temple is sitting unfinished for about 16 years on Mount Zion. And economically, things aren't going well. People are building their own homes, but it seems like they never quite have enough. And God's description is it's kind of like a blanket. I don't know if you've ever been in a case where you've been somewhere, maybe on an airplane or whatever, and they give you one of those airplane blankets, and you need something a little bit with a little bit more square footage. And you get one of these things that looks more like a bath towel that's kind of cut down. It's like, I'm trying to keep warm, ain't going to do it. Or if you're really hungry on an airplane, and really go for a good burger and they give you a little bag of peanuts and you're thankful for it, but it's like, I need more! <laughs> and this whole idea that they aren't, that for all the effort they're putting in, they're not getting a return on their labor. God tells the people through the prophet Haggai, the reason you're doing this is, you're building your panel houses and you're leaving my house in ruin. I'm the one who did this. I'm the one who blew your stuff away. So, go up to the mountains, get some wood, come on down, rebuild the temple, that I may be glorified in the building of the house. So you might think, wow, God's really putting the kibosh on the people uh, in their rebuilding of their own lives in Jerusalem just because of his temple? And for God, his glory in the building of that house was his priority. And he then tells the people, the reason you didn't seem to have enough is because you're looking to your interests first, not mine. So, all of that is uh, context. We have to ask ourselves, if God's glory is his own priority, does the priority which God gives to his own glory pose a problem to us? I mean, if we want to be honest, I mean, we can be sanctimonious and go, of course not. Or, or, or put on some other accent. Um, <coughs> But you might ask yourself, wait a minute, if I did this, people wouldn't be looking on me kindly. So we ask ourselves, is God an egomaniac? But on his case, on a cosmic level, not just a personal level. Oh, Rose. When I think of his glory, do you think he's saying, recognize my glory because it's to your benefit? You know, the same as when you tithe. Go ahead and give. It's for your benefit, even though I'm commanding it. And I'm wondering if he's saying, if you recognize my glory, it's going to be for your good. Rose, you're actually anticipating the point I want to get to probably either next week or the week. And please understand, you're not stealing any thunder. I, 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 yes, the, the answer to your question is definitely yes. And I think that gives us a sense of why this is so important. I mean, think about something that you might show, I want to jump ahead on this. Let's say you had something that you might want to um, have as uh, 
a trophy. Let's say something you won. Uh, whatever. I mean, maybe a bowling trophy. I mean, when your, your grandson or grandkids did some sort of little league and you're saying, look at this trophy. We're number one. Now, the people who see the trophy, it's like, well, okay, what benefit is that to me? All you're doing is bragging. All you're doing is saying, look how good we are. But with God's glory, there is that component that by understanding and observing his glory, that we benefit from it. And we're, we're going to deal with that. But yeah, thank you for anticipating that. It's a good point. Anyone else? <coughs> Any other comments? Questions? Yes, Susan. Well, in answer to your question, does it pose a problem? Yes, as selfish, sinful creatures, I think it does. Okay, I would, I would agree. Uh, where I'm going with this is if you have, again, going from the slides, if you have a mere human who's making his, his or her own personal glory their life priority, we correctly see something, we'd see somebody doing that as being very egotistical. I used the example last week of a cartoon that Thomas and Zach used to like to watch during the 1990s. Maybe some of you remember it, watching with your kids or grandkids. Uh, it was called Johnny Bravo. And you have this character who's very Elvis-like uh, in terms of his, um, uh, his accent, his uh, speech mannerisms, but he had this really huge blonde hair whipped back. And he'd be talking to somebody and they'd say, Johnny, can you do such and such? He goes, enough about you, let's talk about me. Um, it was, everything was always centered in on Johnny Bravo. And people realized that it kind of gets old. Kind of quick. But how does this work out in the case of God? Okay, with human glory, anything we do for our own glory is going to be riddled with imperfection, incompletion, and sin. <coughs> ask ourselves, I mean, ask yourself in terms of the things you do. What are your motives for what you're doing? And they may very well be wonderful, good, godly motives. But in so many cases, how much of what we do has some sense of, I want to do something for people to recognize me, or to give me an advantage, or something centering on me. It might even be very subtle. There's also the understanding of imperfect and incomplete. And I think I used last week the example, and I think I used the wrong name, um, Olympic swimmer Missy Franklin from the United States, if you were following the Olympics during this last Summer Olympics. I think she won a gazillion medals, don't really. I mean, quite a handful of medals in, in swimming competition, as did, is it Michael Phelps? Yeah. But think about this. They're now, at least in the record books, in January 2013, they are the Olympic winners, the, in many cases, Olympic record holders, in some cases, world record holders, for certain events they've been in. Like, cool. Now, will they be able to continue on holding on to those records as time goes by? No. Maybe, maybe I, mean, I, mean, I mean, granted there are some Olympic um, careers that last for maybe uh, 12 or 16 or 20 years if you can really push yourself and, and stay in shape. But our bodies age, and something called death eventually gets us. Uh, so it's a little hard to compete in swimming for the break, you know, and my float, but no, bad news. Anyway, the, the point is, you can't do that. But think about this also. 
Missy Franklin and Michael Phelps weren't the Olympic medal holders for all time. I mean, history has to unfold, and then in 2012, they become the record holders. They weren't always the record holders. There's Mark Spitz back in 1972 and, and others. Where I'm going with this is, even if you have the glory of an Olympic medal, it's imperfect and incomplete. You'll only have it for a short amount of time. Somebody else will take it over. You can't hold on to it. And maybe the, maybe the reason you got into competitive swimming in the first place is because, I, I don't know what's with the case of the Olympic swimmers, but maybe you did it because you hated your sister and you wanted to show her up in the pool and you, you swam a little bit faster and somebody said, wow, that kid's got talent, and moved on. So even that could have sin riddled or, or put into it. So if you see where I'm going with that. Anything we do in a human sense of glory, it's, it is imperfect, incomplete, and stands very likely to be riddled with some level of sin. Rose. Uh, I forget the Olympic skater, but he said... When he won his gold medal, he said the very next day, he thought, what do I have? He said, what do I have to strive for now? I've gotten the top prize. And he said it meant nothing to him. The next day, after he received it. Actually, that's kind of common. Uh, there have been a number of athletes, typically from baseball, I'm not sure what it is about baseball in particular, who have talked about things that they were able to do as ball players. Well, let me stick with baseball players in particular, but that they were able to do as baseball players that, let's say they won the World Series, or you're a football player and you've won the Super Bowl, and you're in the locker room, and everyone's celebrating, jumping up and down, throwing champagne in each other's face, and you have a quiet moment of reflection, and you think, is this all there is? I mean, even if you repeat as a Super Bowl champion, you're not going to keep doing that forever, but it also gives you pause to think, hmm, maybe what I'm doing is really incomplete in my life. Uh, Frank Tanana, who's a uh, former pitcher for Boston Red Sox, California Angels, and Detroit Tigers, and I think he may have been one other team, uh, talks about that. Uh, his own testimony, one of his uh, friends, I think it was Lyman Bostic, was killed uh, one time uh, after a game years ago, and it put him on thinking about eternal things. So, yeah, thank you. Again, good insight. Let's continue on. We're talking about human glory versus divine glory. When it comes to our human glory, I think we can sum up by saying we're simply not that good. I mean, we, we may have it for a brief moment, but not forever, and not perfectly. But God is. And if you think this through, no glory which exists or, let me read this straight up. No glory which exists has been, is, or ever will be higher than his. God's glory is not incomplete. And it's not diminished with time or increased with time. So it's not like a thousand years ago God had, you have to think of some sort of units for glory. It's not like God possessed a thousand glory units. And as time goes by, it's like, I'm going to work up to 1250 and 1500 and 2000 glory units. He's always had as much glory as he's ever going to have, will have, and has right now. It's perfect. And there's no sin that rips and uh, shoots through the glory of God to make it something less than it should be. 
God's glory is the highest and the best. If God promoted a lesser glory to appear to be more humble to us, he'd be guilty of promoting something inferior at the expense of what's truly best, namely his highest and perfect glory. Now, something that we typically don't think of because we're, bless you, we're honest enough with ourselves to know that when it comes to our own glory, we're not all that great. There's, there's even within fallen human beings who've been saved, regenerated by Christ, there's still that process of sanctification to get us more and more to the image of Christ, which means in terms of the process, we're not there yet. It's not like justification that is a momentary thing where, I, I hate to use the example of like on-off switch, but it is, it is that discreet. You come to faith, you've got as much justification before the Lord as you'll ever have. But that's not true with sanctification or growing in his image. Again, it's a process. But we understand that because of that, there's imperfection that needs to be worked through. But in the case of God, he's already a perfect being. His glory is already perfect. And we tend not to think in terms of extremes, especially in our culture. When somebody comes up and brings extreme points of view, I mean, you, you, if you can tolerate it, especially during the last presidential election, if you're going through political commentator programs, and you'll have somebody on the left, somebody on the right, and they probably maybe end up yelling at each other or just trying to make a point, and then you, if you have enough patience to sit there and listen to this, you might think, you know, between the things that are being said by both sides here, maybe there's something in the middle that would actually be closer to the truth. So we tend to think in terms of trying to narrow down or find a middle ground between extremes. However, God is an extreme being. He's the ultimate extreme being. Ultimate perfection. Ultimate holiness. It's not like God has to find some middle ground between, uh, between sin and deprivation and his holiness. He's on that far end of the scale. And again, we don't tend to think in those terms. But if you have a being who's on that far end of the scale, certain things have to follow, which is one of the comments I made here about God's glory being the highest and the best. If it's already the highest and the best, you can't make it better. It's already it's an it's extreme apex, and it's always been there. So, I think I've kind of summed up what I said with the first point. But I'd like us to take a look at a biblical way of understanding this. If you have your Bibles, please turn to Hebrews chapter 6, verses 13 and 14. Hebrews chapter 6, 13 and 14. There's a principle here that might get overlooked, but I think it, it really ties into what we're discussing here about God's glory. Okay, reading. When God made his promise to Abraham, since there was no one greater for him to swear by, he swore by himself, saying, I will surely bless you and give you many descendants. So, point I want to make here is, think about what happens if you're, let's say, in a law court, and you are asked to 
or commanded to um, swear an oath before you give testimony. I don't know if they still do that, but and, and if you can still put your hand on the Bible. Uh, I, I know it's still done for presidential inaugurations. But the idea is that when you make an oath, you are affirming this by someone higher than yourself. Which is why when somebody's really trying to make a point, even if they're lying to your teeth or lying through their teeth to you, but saying, this is true, this is true, I swear in my mother's grave, I swear to God, this is true. And of course, you're supposed to think, well, he really means it. And then maybe he does, maybe he doesn't. I mean, this is the nature of our culture. But the nature of an oath is that you swear by someone higher than yourself. When God makes an oath, <coughs> who does he swear by? Himself. There's no one higher. It's not like God plus. It's not like God says, well, you got to go with God plus. There's no one higher. If you're, going to, if you're going to do what God does in this case, he's making the point. He's the extreme being. He's already the highest. And the same holds true for his glory. It's already the highest. And when you think through that, yes, these things are true, it now makes sense why you're going to see God promoting his glory throughout the entirety of Scripture. And it's truly a lens by which you can read Scripture. Jim? It's interesting how swearing can have so different meanings. And what you're saying is a good thing, but swearing is, is a bad thing. The term, and I don't know how those, the same <coughs> word got used for two different things. Uh, one of them, swearing would be uh, affirming. That, that's a legal sense of an oath. And just plain old simple cursing or good old fashioned cussing, for lack of a better term. Uh, but I think there is a relationship. For example, you find with Peter on the night of Jesus' arrest. I think we're all familiar with the account. Peter's being called out by a servant girl. You're one of those Galileans, I can tell by your accent. And it'd be like, and please understand, especially some of us from the Deep South, I'm not trying to offend, but my best shot at, I mean, let's say this was a northern and southern part of the United States. They're in the north. Jesus is from the south. It's like, one of his disciples, no I'm not, no I'm not, your accent gives you away sir, no it doesn't, now I'm sure, and I know people from the south have said, oh you have a distinct northern accent, to me, it's like, okay fine, but unfortunately everybody else knows he has one too, so I've never really been able to pick it out, but the point is, when Peter follows up with that, he follows up with oaths and cursings, so this, uh, oftentimes, when you're, uh, when one is cursing, they're also doing a corrupt form of taking an oath. I mean, think about two names that come up all the time in our culture when it comes to somebody just making an exclamation or cursing. The blessed name of our God and the blessed name of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. And I think that's where that happens, is that cursing is a corrupted form of oath-giving. Especially, so, especially if it accompanies a lie. Mm -hmm. It might be that's one of the ways it got corrupted, is that people would use the oath to speak a lie. Mm -hmm. Exactly. And it became the opposite of what an oath is supposed to be. Yeah, I think that's quite likely. So hopefully that 
Yeah, it's a good point. I, I, I hadn't occurred that didn't occur to me. Yeah, no, 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 no. I, I think it's a good point. I think it's a good point. Let's continue on. Anticipating, you know, Rose anticipated this point. I didn't anticipate hers. Um, uh, as we all see, God's attitude toward His own glory is not that of show off. Rather, it is one that He desires us to enjoy, benefit, and be transformed by simply beholding it. There is benefit to us seeing the glory of God. It's not like God's holding His God's glory trophy in your face, going, "In your face, humans! Look at this! This is great! I'm God, and you're not! Horrible to be you!" you know? He's not doing that. That there's something about God's glory in which seeing it benefits us and transforms us. And, and we'll, we will be seeing that as our uh, sessions go by. Sharon? If we don't, be, I, for me, if I don't behold his glory, I'm not going to recognize his authority. And therefore, his, his word isn't going to be something that I'm inclined to immediately obey. But it's in obedience that we're transformed. We can't be we can't be obedient unless we recognize that his authority is the ultimate authority. And so unless we can behold his glory that way, it's not we will not be benefited. Be benefited. That's true. And let me let me kind of jump ahead on a point I'm gonna be making a little bit later on in our uh, class sessions. Is that for a lot of Christians, I think they think that beholding God's glory is how do I put it, jumping forward in terms of obedience, that if I do all these things that God tells me to do in this book, this will be good. However, I believe that Scripture makes the point that once you behold and understand God's glory, you are then moved more toward obedience. The obedience is a natural consequence. It's the effect of beholding the glory of God you won't behold the glory of God by obedience. That, that's, to use an old phrase, putting the cart before the horse. Julie? Yeah, the same thing is if, like, a lot of times the world will try to influence us as to what is most important. And, and it can be any one of a number of things with either power or money or even, even just some of the choices that we make. But if you, if you truly are basking in God's glory, you can't help but see that some of those things are sin. You, you feel bad about making some of those choices when you're sitting in God's glory. It's like you know that that's the wrong thing to do. Mm -hmm. it, it does, it, and your, your point about the priority, I think it's really true that that sense of importance, and I'll get you in a moment soon, but I mean, think about something would be, a, I'll say a blatant Example the other way, um, for example, when World Series or you know, the Stanley Cup playoffs, if they ever get played again, um, or the Super Bowl, <coughs> cable dials, or you hear people at work, you would think these are the most important events that have ever happened in human history. <coughs> Who's going to win the Super Bowl this year? Now, if it, to make a point, I've been in places where somebody would have ESPN Sports Center on. And please understand that condemning sports center over by itself. But I, it occurs to me, how can you have two weeks worth of prior discussion about the major, who's going to win a game? It's like, it's really worth all that time and attention? 
Really? And then when you, I think when you understand and behold more the glory of God, there is a sense that those things have their place, but they're not the most important. It helps you understand and, and, and assess your priorities correctly. So you had a question or comment? Yeah. Um, this is reminding me of a, something I read a couple weeks ago, but prior to that, I've often thought about um, like when somebody dies, or especially if they are somebody famous, you might read an article about them, you might read an obituary, and um, so much of the focus is all the clubs they belong to, the movies they were in, and you're just like, really? That's what you have to say? What about your family? Or, and um, so a couple weeks ago, I was going through a cookbook that uh, my own that I made where I cut things out and put them in, in a binder. And um, one of them was a recipe that came in a chapel chat from like the early 90s or something. And I, and I turned it over. I just was curious what, what was on the back of it. Okay. And um, back then, I think it was women's ministries used to do a, you know, guess who I am person. And they do a little description. And it was of Esther Staten. And oh. it was the coolest thing because her, her thing that she wrote about, um, you know, what she enjoys doing or what she just does in her life, it was something with the music, and I can't remember. She played piano, maybe Diane remembers. But, and she was a, a wife. And I just thought, that was so beautiful, you know, and you had to guess who she was. And that has just so stuck out to me. It wasn't about, she had to feel like she had to write all these things she belonged to, and maybe she did, and maybe she really didn't have any other hobbies, but I just thought it was really beautiful. That's true. Uh, there is, tell you what, I wasn't planning on this, but something you just brought to mind I think really ties into this well, just in terms of the priority. Let me see if we can find this quickly. Uh, thank you, Lord. A, the uh, book of Philippians, chapter 3. Uh, let's see, I'm going to start reading in verse... <coughs> ah, starting in verse 1. And this is where I'm going with this. And again, thank you, Sue. It's a good point. I think it ties well to the glory of God. Finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. It is no trouble for me to write these, to write the same things to you again, and it is a safeguard for you. Watch out for those dogs, those men who do evil, those mutilators of the flesh. For it is we who are the circumcision, who we who worship by the Spirit of God, who glory in Christ Jesus, and who put no confidence in the flesh. Though I myself have reasons for such confidence. So, let's listen to what he says in terms of his confidence. Circumcised on the eighth day. Good thing for a Jewish male to do. That's what, exactly what you're supposed to do. Uh, of the people of Israel, God's chosen people. Of the tribe of Benjamin, the first royal tribe. If you remember Saul, first king of Israel, first human king of Israel. A Hebrew of Hebrews. In regard to the law, a Pharisee, as for zeal, persecuting the church, as for legalistic righteousness, faultless. But whatever was to my profit, I now consider loss for the sake of who? Christ. What is more, I consider everything a loss compared to the surpassing greatness of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whose sake I have lost all things, I consider them rubbish, we'll go back to that in a moment, that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, 
but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness that comes from God and is by faith. I want to know Christ and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of sharing in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, and so somehow to attain to the resurrection from the dead. A little bit of background here is that in the same way that you were describing, Sue, that there are a lot of people who will tell us their, oh, what's the old Latin term, curriculum vitae, their, they'll give you their resume. So here's all the accomplishments I've done in life. Like, okay, fine. Is our life the sum of our resume? Is it, this is our, because these things can be either a statement of things we've done or they can be written for our own glory. Look at the things I've accomplished. Paul, for example, probably had at least one, and I've heard as many as possibly three equivalent PhD degrees in theology. I'm not sure how somebody figured that out, but just in terms of the study he's, that he would have done, he would have been not just Saul of Tarsus, he would have been Dr. Saul of Tarsus. Comes from the right tribe, he's probably in the Sanhedrin, he's a Pharisee, and I mean, the Pharisees were literally... The, the word comes from the word parashim, which means the separated ones. Like, we're more holy than you are. We're separated from you. Because we're more holy. He was part of all that. And he takes all of this uh, collection of things that in his culture would have given him incredible status. Remember how Jesus says the rabbis used to like to be greeted in the marketplaces and have the highest seats in, at dinners? He was giving that up and a whole lot more. He's saying, in essence, my PhD in theology, all of this other stuff is rubbish. Now, the word rubbish here, let's see if I can get the point across without being too crude. We're not talking about like old popcorn containers you see at the end of like uh, at a sports event where somebody's cleaning up and the like. <coughs> We're talking about human dung. Okay, well, let, let's just be straight out about that. That's the comparison he's making, that all of these things he accomplished, his resume was done compared to knowing Jesus Christ. So when you have somebody like an Esther Staten, who can just say simply, who am I? Somebody who has liked or played music and is a wife. A simple description, and think the simpler, the simpler it is it gives glory to God. And please understand, I'm not saying that people who have done advanced degrees and things to just simply throw them away as if they uh, didn't have them. If that's the case, uh, Dr. Henderson would have to stop practicing medicine. Um, I have a master's in theology. I'm thankful I had the opportunity to do it. And hopefully I can take things that I've learned from that experience and translate it into things that we do here. But hopefully if it's still allowed at the time. When I die, if a simple tombstone would say, Walter Hample, um, husband, father, Christian, uh, that would suffice. Uh, yes? Whatever you do, you do to the glory of God and you give back to God what he's given you. And so uh, it's what you're describing. But I, it reminds me of uh, a recording recently I heard of a rendition of Just As I Am and interjected in that was a recording of Billy Graham whose voice was aged and weak, and he said, a year ago I thought I was dying. He says, and when, and in dying, I didn't say to the Lord, I've preached your gospel to many people. I said to the Lord, I am still a sinner, and I will die a sinner, 
and I still need the cross. So it was like, when it comes to that point, it's not going to be anything about what I accomplished here. It's going to be about, I need Jesus. I still need Jesus. And it's about Him. That's true. And so whatever we do, especially as believers, should be for the glory of God and recognition that what we have, He's given us. The intelligence, the education, or the, the husband or the wife that we have, He's given it to us. And all we do is for His glory. I, yeah, I can't think of the, like also one of Paul's Corinthian letters that he makes a statement, what do you have that you have not received? Exactly. And that, you know, to keep that in mind and give God glory for what he has given us. Let's continue on. I want to talk about some other biblical examples of the priority of God's glory to himself. A number of these, as you can see, are going to be from the Gospel of John, and I would like to read, I'll tell you what, um, not to just say my own vocal cords, but so that other voices can get on the recording. If um, I could have some volunteers for reading John 11, 1 through 4. Thank you, Sharon. John 13, 25 through 32. Susan, thank you. Uh, John 17, 1 through 5. Sue, thank you. And Isaiah 43, 1 through 7. Thank you, Geraldine. Sorry, she, she hit the buzzer faster than you did toward me. Sorry. Okay, uh, please go ahead with the John 11 passage. Now a man named Lazarus was sick. He was from Bethany, the village of Mary, and her sister Martha. This Mary, whose brother Lazarus now lay sick, was the same one who poured perfume on the Lord and wiped his feet with her hair. So the sisters sent word to Jesus, Lord, the one you love is sick. When he heard this, Jesus said, this sickness will not end in death. No, it is for God's glory, so that God's Son may be glorified through it. Okay, we're, well, thank you. We're going to cover this again in another aspect, because there isn't, for many of these cases, a, a sheer or, or, or discrete break between the type of topics I want to deal with. There's going to be some overlap, and this will, this will be one of them. Where I want to go with this is primarily in verse 4, where Jesus says, this sickness, Lazarus the sickness, will not end in death. So what's going on here? Why is Jesus doing what he's doing? Or in this case, sitting back for a few more days rather than hustling off to Bethany in order to lay hands on Lazarus and heal him. He says, no, it's for God's glory so that God's Son may be glorified through it. So again, here's Jesus saying, in essence, this will happen so that I can be glorified. Again, priority. Uh, the John 13, 25-32 passage. Leaning back against Jesus, he asked, Lord, who is it? Jesus answered, It is the one to whom I will give this piece of bread when I have kissed in the dish. Then dipping the piece of bread, he gave it to Jesus Iscariot, son of Simon. As soon as Judas took the bread, Satan entered into him. What you are about to do, do quickly, Jesus told him. But no one at the meal understood why Jesus said this to him. Since Judas had charge of the money, some thought Jesus was telling him to buy what was needed for the feast or to give something to the poor. As soon as Judas had taken the bread, he went out, and it was night. Now when he was gone, Jesus said, Now is the Son of Man glorified, and God is glorified in him. If God is glorified in him, God will glorify the Son in himself 
and I will glorify him at once. Oh, and will glorify him at once. Okay, good. Thank you, Susan. Okay, Pastor Chair and I asked Susan to read a little bit more just for context so you could understand, because I could jump into verse 31 and go, when he was gone, Judas, but you understand the context of why he departed. But primarily in 31, verses 31 and 32, now is the Son of Man glorified and God is glorified in him. If God is glorified in him, God will glorify the Son in himself and will glorify him at once. So not only do you have God being glorified, but you have, I would say, a clear indication of this intra-Trinitarian relationship between the Father and the Son. The Son glorifies the Father, the Father glorifies the Son. This is important to God. And it's, I think it's wonderful that you see this in terms of a clear description of the glory that the members of the Trinity give to each other. So you have a little bit more insight into the thinking. Obviously, it will never be exhausted, but you'll get a little hint of the thinking that the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit about, have about their relationship with each other. And glory is a priority in Jesus' prayer here. Again, notice, as soon as Judas is gone, it's kind of like, Okay, the riffraff's finally left the room. Now I can get down to a little bit more business with you. And the first thing that Jesus brings up is these statements about the, the mutual glorification of the Father and the Son. Uh, the John 17, 1 through 5 passage. Okay, thank you, Steve. After Jesus said this, he looked toward heaven and prayed, Father, the time has come. Glorify your Son that your Son may glorify you. For you granted him authority over all people, that he might give eternal life to all those who have given him. You have given him. Now this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. I have brought you glory on earth by completing the work you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your presence with the glory I had with you before the world began. Okay, good. Thank you, Sue. Think about what's happening here. You've probably read this through or heard this before in terms of the passage from John. <coughs> what, what are the events that are transpiring at this, at this point? I mean, it's the night before Jesus' arrest. Oh, excuse me, the night of Jesus' arrest before his crucifixion, that's what I meant, sorry. So you have Jesus who understands exactly what's going to be happening to him in these next 24 hours. He's going to be betrayed by one of his own. Functionally, he's going to be betrayed by another one of his own. We call it denial, as in Peter. All the other ones are going to scatter like, I can't think of a good example, something scattering. Uh, scattering like chaff in the wind. Sorry, I was trying to think of something pointed, delayed. Here are the things that Jesus has in his heart. He knows that there's going to be a separation of himself from God the Father, which I think was, for Jesus, infinitely more painful than what he was going to suffer in terms of the physical pain of crucifixion, of scourging, of beating, as severe and horrid as that was. Here's God the Son the Logos, the second person of the Trinity, 
who's known nothing but joyous relationship with his father, and that for a brief period of time, that's going to be cut off. I can't imagine the horror Jesus was going through at this point. But knowing this, and knowing that it's clean, we know that he sweats blood. It's, uh, I've heard that it is, that's not an exaggeration, that when people under extreme duress uh, have this happen, that they can literally have their capillaries open up and they literally sweat blood, and he was doing that. But what's his first priority when he's praying? It wasn't, Father, calm me down, this has been a rough night. And it, it, he could have said that, but he doesn't. He says, Father, the time has come. Glorify your Son, that the Son may glorify you. This is his priority. This is the first thing he asks for in prayer. He asks for the glory of his Father to be, re, uh, to be given to him and that it would be renewed in the same way that it was with the glory he had with him before the world began. This is how he starts this off. We're actually going to be returning to this prayer in uh, some, definitely, some uh, future class sessions. Because there's something else later on here that the glory shows up again, but it has a little bit of a different take to it. And we're, we're going to see that. Uh, let's go with the Isaiah passage, Isaiah 43, 1 through 7. But now, O Israel, the Lord who created you says, Do not be afraid, for I have ransomed you. I have called you by name, you are mine. When you go through the deep waters and great trouble, I will be with you. When you go through rivers of difficulty, you will not drown. When you walk through the fire of oppression, you will not be burned out. The flames will not consume you. For I am the Lord, your God, the Holy One of Israel, your Savior. I gave Egypt, Ethiopia, and Seba as a ransom for your freedom. Others died that you might live. I traded their lives for yours because you are precious to me. You are honored and I love you. Do not be afraid, for I am with you. I will gather you and your children from east and west and from north and south. I will bring my sons and daughters back to Israel from the distant corners of the earth. All who claim me as their God will come, for I have made them for my glory. It was I who created them. Okay, thank you very much. This is one of the most wonderful, comforting passages I think a believer can read concerning his or her relationship with God, which is why I wanted to do the full context so we can understand exactly what leads up to verse 7. But we have God who says, Fear not, I have redeemed you, I have created you, I have formed you. When you pass through the waters, I'll be with you. Pass through the rivers, they won't sweep over you or literally overwhelm you. If you've heard, you've heard the term overwhelming, right? Whelming is an ancient term for baptism. So it's weird. I mean, you can actually read some older English texts that say that the whelming of this child happened on such and such a day. It's a whelming. Oh, baptism. You're going through the waters. Overwhelmed is when you have too many waters going over you. You're overwhelmed. You're like over-baptized or over too much water. Waterboarding. <laughs> Thank you. Yes, a very, very contemporary analogy. But you have all these things. You walk through the flames. You won't be burned. You're precious and honored in my sight because I love you. How remarkable. How absolutely comforting and remarkable. But it ends up with all of this thing. Bring my sons and daughters from bring my sons from afar, my daughters from the ends of the earth. Everyone who is called by my name. 
And who does he, why does he create them? Whom I created for my glory. So again, the reason you were created wasn't just because God had this little science experiment going in heaven going, well, what happens when we make these corporal <coughs> images that kind of look like us? He made them for his glory. That's why we were created. And that's, again, God showing his own priority. But again, notice that in this passage from Isaiah, you're not looking at something where God says, in essence, you know, look at my glory. Bad being you, great being me. Nothing like that. You get just the opposite. The sense of God's love and care for his people, but it ties into his glory. So his glory does benefit us. That'll be maybe the first rays of light on the point that Rose brought up earlier. Uh, questions or comments about what we've covered up to this point? Susan. Well, maybe you know this. Um, you know in John 11, when the traitor leaves, when Jesus leaves, does that change the tone and the intimacy of Jesus speaking to his apostles? I would have to reread, but I, I think it does. And what I'd really like to do someday, if I can do this, is take the parallel passages, not only just from John, but from what are called the synoptics. Uh, oh, sorry, that was my fault. Sorry. Uh, and be careful how I do that. <laughs> this thing keeps shimmying back and forth. That's why you're hearing that noise. Sorry about that. I'm not, I'm not doing that on purpose. But just take a look at the synoptics, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and compare all those with the John passages. I think you do find a shift in, in intimacy that's there. Uh, I, for example, I think I've done this before, and I have to double check. I'm, I'm not 100% sure about this. But the accounts of where the Lord's, what we call the Lord's Supper happens, the, 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 cup, uh, the bread of the cup, I believe happens after Judas departs. I have to double check that, but I, I think that's the case. So I think there is a shift that's there. So Jesus is now talking to the remaining 11. And he has core. more things to tell them. Yeah, the core. The ones who ultimately, ultimately will not abandon him. And then talking about the long term, like Peter coming back. Sharon, you had a question, comment? Well, the comment I have is, is when we were talking about Jesus in the, in, the, in the John 17 passage, where he knows what he's confronting, and he knows that he, and he's saying, God, now glorify yourself in you. Is I was glorified in the beginning, and it's for his glory. But the thing that strikes me about that is even though Jesus is confronting this thing that's coming on, and he knows what it's going to be, and he's going to be separated from his Father, he also knows there's a purpose behind this suffering that he's about to, about to face. And that's one of the things that struck me when I read this passage as I became a Christian through reading the Gospel of John, is that... One of, the, one of the burning questions for non-Christians is why, if there is a God, why is there suffering? But what this told me is that there, what this informed me of is that with God, that suffering that takes place in the earth has a, has a purpose, has a own purpose to it, that God will complete, and he will identify for us someday. But that in God, there is purpose to that suffering. The suffering will not stop on earth. But there is purpose, and even Jesus recognized in his suffering that, that that's what he was looking toward, is the goal for which he'd come, and he'd come to suffer. 
and there was a purpose to save all of humanity, to bring them, to reconcile them to God. So in God, in glorifying himself, God has a purpose for us. And uh, that, that was profound to me. That was very, that was pivotal for me in it, coming to terms with the suffering of the world. Especially when you see Christ who suffers. If, let's say you're in some sort of a hybrid of a philosophy or a religion class and somebody describes the gods of other world religions, the whole idea behind those other world religions is basically the good stuff is on the other side of this life. Your goal is to either go to your deity as an Allah, let's say for Islam, or in Buddhism just to be, uh, I think, put into the great unknown or just the, the, the great single consciousness but basically it's delivery from this world delivery from the suffering of this world Christianity I think is unique in the sense that you have a God who came to earth becomes human and enters into human suffering and does it voluntarily I mean we might be thinking whoa, 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 you're going the wrong way God we're supposed to like escape suffering from here and go to you it's like no Going to do this first. That there is, there is value in that. Uh, there is purpose in it. And even and this can be a little hard, I think, to get our hands around, especially if this happens to us personally. But the suffering that happens, just even nowadays. I mean, whatever human suffering, be it illness or, uh, think about what happened in Newtown, Connecticut last month. I think a lot of us are inclined to think this was mindless, purposeless suffering. It's not. God had a purpose in this happening. I can't tell you what that is. I don't know what it is. But we know from Scripture there is a reason behind it. So that, because if we don't, if we don't understand that, that means that there, there's all this hurt and suffering that happens to people that has no benefit, no purpose. It's completely random, and God has somehow, for whatever reasons, said, eh, no, nothing's going to pan of this, but I'll let it happen anyway. I think God loves his creation too much to allow suffering to happen for no reason. Even though it seems completely out of our realm of trying to put our mental arms around it as to why something should be allowed to happen. Rose? I was just thinking back to the book, The Shack. Yes. And now I see that the main thing that was missing there was the glory of God. You know, he made God manageable by being a woman and being very loving and making them biscuits and all this stuff. But there was no glory of God or of Jesus or of the Holy Spirit. And now I see that that was the missing element. It was God's glory in all of this that happened. <coughs> to him with his daughter that was killed and so on. That's, that's an interesting point. I, I haven't read the entirety of the shack, but that's, that's an interesting point from somebody who has. Let's continue on. It's got a few more minutes. Try to get a few more things going here. The glory of God in God's actions. We talked about the glory of God in his purposes. Glory of God in his actions. We see God gaining glory through Pharaoh and the Egyptian army. And I'll read that passage from Exodus chapter 14, 1 through 4, and then 15 through 18. 
Exodus 14, 1 through 4, and 15 through 18. Then the Lord said to Moses, Tell the Israelites to turn back and encamp at Pi-Hiroth, between Migdal and the sea. They are to encamp by the sea, directly opposite baal Zephon. Pharaoh will think the Israelites are wandering around the land in confusion, hemmed in by the desert. And I will harden Pharaoh's heart, and he will pursue them. But I will gain glory for myself through Pharaoh's army <coughs> and all his army, through Pharaoh and all his army, and the Egyptians will know that I am the Lord. So the Israelites did this. And then uh, moving up to verse 15. Then the Lord said to Moses, Why are you crying out to me? Tell the Israelites to move on. Raise your staff and stretch out your hand over the sea to divide the waters so that the Israelites can go through the sea on dry ground. I will harden the hearts of the Egyptians so that they will go in after them. And I will gain glory through Pharaoh and all his army. Through his, through his chariots and his horsemen. The Egyptians will know that I am the Lord when I gain glory through Pharaoh, his chariots, and his horsemen. So, we have the case here where the Israelites have already left, basically left Egypt. They're on their way out. They're at the Sea of Reeds or the Red Sea. And they've got the Egyptian army hot on tail because Pharaoh's decided, oh, good heavens, we just... We just sent away our free workforce. Why did we do that? And so trying to reclaim them. And here's God saying that he is going to harden Pharaoh's heart and the Egyptians, and they're going to go straight after the Israelites through the Red Sea, the parting waters. And that what is going to happen to them, God says he will gain glory for himself by doing this. So in the actions of God parting the Red Sea, of hardening Pharaoh's heart, and the those of the Egyptian army going after the Israelites, that God gains glory for himself in those actions. But he's, he's saying primarily, the reason I'm doing this is so that I will gain glory and the Egyptians will know I am the Lord. Or literally, the Egyptians will know I am that I am. Julie? I'm sorry, I thought you had your hand up. Sorry. I'm trying to be careful. Sharon, you do have your hand up, right? Okay. <laughs> Okay. But I was thinking how this goes along with the Isaiah passage, Isaiah 43, where he says, because of my love for you, I will sacrifice other nations. I will sacrifice men of other nations on your behalf. And this brings in glory because it says, there's nobody higher than me, and, you, and I am God. I am that I am. But also, I'm sacrificing them for, in your behalf. Right. The, yeah, but somehow... And that, that might go against the train of our thinking culturally where equal opportunity means equal outcomes and equal everything else. But it's for his purposes. But it's for his purposes that God is, God is doing this. It, it, it may be a little hard for us to go, get our hands around, but it's still happening. Susan? We're just going to uh, add to what you said about the free workforce. And it occurred to me that Pharaoh had something really good going that glorified himself. He was undoubtedly employing this free labor force to build the pyramids and the sphinxes to glorify the false god of Pharaoh. And God had a much better plan for his people to call them into the promised land. And um, how Satan uses people sometimes to be doing something that has nothing to do with what God would have them do. And God took them out. Mm -hmm. Exactly. And, and then the process... 
the Israelites are delivered from being in the presence of some pretty, how do you say something's less or more, wicked idolatry. A lot of idolatry. Uh, the judgments that happen as you read through the passages in Exodus, all of them are aimed at a god of Egypt. They're not just random or seemingly random natural events like the turning of water into or the turning of the waters of the Nile into blood. The Nile was considered to be a god because, hey, this is the life stream that brings water into this otherwise arid land. Um, you bet we're going to sit down and worship it. Uh, and God turns it to blood. And all of these other things that he does, uh, the sun god, Ra, uh, three days of darkness, things of that sort. Uh, it, it's God's way of fighting against the gods of Egypt saying, no, I'm supreme. And again, with Pharaoh, I don't know if the Egyptian pharaohs thought of themselves as God, but they definitely were self-glorifying beings. So I think it's a good insight that you have this pharaoh who wanted these, they, he wanted the Egyptians, he wanted the Israeli workforce in Egypt to do things that would ultimately glorify him. Which is why if you take a look at the earlier chapters of Exodus, when Moses arrives on the scene and the people are getting this hint that maybe they're going to be released, the Pharaoh says, make the work even harder. Don't give them straw for the bricks that they're making. Have them go out and get the straw. And he says the reason for this is so they can have their mind taken off of the lies that Moses is telling them. The lies that Moses is telling them is the truth of God's word. So just, just some thought behind all of that that led up to what happening, what's happening here at the Red Sea. Again, thank you very much for your participation. That is all for this session. The PowerPoints which I used for this class will be posted on both the Restoring the Core website as well as the School of the Solitary Place blog. Thank you for listening to this program. We can be contacted at mail at restoringthecore.com. We're on Facebook at www.facebook.com slash restoringthecore. You can also follow us on Twitter at RestoreTheCore. Our original blog is still active. It can be found at schoolofthesolitaryplace.blogspot.com. Thank you for listening. We hope you join us next time for the Lens of Glory.